Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, February 1st. I want to apologize to all of you listeners for the lack of recap episodes over the final two days of the 2022 Australian Open. Now, some of you may already know, but our Crack Rackets team was so fortunate and excited to be able to play a role in the 2022 ITA kickoff weekend. College tennis, something that is near and dear to our hearts here at Crack Rackets, and so to be able to broadcast seven different regions happening across the country over the past four days was something we were thrilled to be able to do, but as such, took up every waking moment of our time, and thus we weren't able yet to talk about what were two outstanding Grand Slam finals to kick off our 2022 season. Certainly, Ashley Barty looked like a dominant world number one on her way to the final, got tested in that second set, but ultimately her level wins out as she captures Grand Slam number three of her career. I want to talk about her performance, where Ashley Barty goes from here, what separated her from the rest of the field throughout this event, and then, of course, the response to her Grand Slam title, which has been overwhelmingly positive. And then, of course, and I'm going to start the show with this, Rafa Medvedev. Rafa, two sets to love down, love 40 down in his 2-3 service game in the third set. He comes back, wins a five-plus hour thriller over Daniil Medvedev to take the lead in the all-time men's single slam count number 21 for Rafa. He's now won each Grand Slam twice, putting him in elite company, which is where he's been throughout the duration of his career. And how did he manage to pull off the comeback? That is obviously something I want to explore on today's show, as well as what we have to accept was a missed opportunity, not only for Daniil Medvedev, but for the rest of the field. You only had Rafa. One member of the big three who didn't play down the home stretch of 2021. And, you know, given his age, certainly, yes, he's always on the short list of contenders. But anyone in his first week on his way to that title, did we think he was capable of this sort of level? I certainly did not. I want to talk about where I was wrong. But again, what we missed on in terms of the next gen, where they go from here, how they as a cohort rebound, regroup, heading towards the rest of the year slams. I want to talk about all of that and and more. Again, we're going to focus on those two Australian Open singles finals on today's show. I'm well aware Bruno Kuzahara, uh, the young American, wins a junior slam title. And he, Samir Banerjee, now what? That's two of the last three going to the American men's juniors. Of course, I saw that. Of course, Nick Kyrgios, Tanasi Kokonakis, Grand Slam champions. I have to talk about that on today's show as well. So I want to focus on Australia. I should say those singles finals, but I'll touch on the other non-singles uh, finals 
finals in Australia that caught my eye as well. It's going to be an Australia-centric podcast. We put our final thoughts, our final bow on the year's first Grand Slam. Of course, I'm well aware the tour doesn't sleep for anyone. Three ATP events happening this week. I am going to head off to Cleveland to cover the ATP Challenger happening. They're going to be doing some work for the tournament. Going to try and talk to as many players in the field as possible. And of course, all of those conversations will end up as interviews on our Cracked Interviews podcast. And, you know, they'll end up also as videos on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. You're going to get to see my smiling face, these players' smiling faces. We're rocking and rolling. Yeah, year's first Grand Slam in the book. Only rest is for the weary. I do apologize again to go full circle here. I suppose I rested yesterday, but we still had matches to broadcast yesterday. I was still in that college tennis-centric zone. I am ref- you know, refreshed, refocused, got the chance to actually watch these matches from start to finish, which was not something I had the chance to do over the weekend. That was the other reason there's a delay in this podcast. Again, I'm, I'm as candid with you listeners as possible. I wanted to get this to you as soon as we could. I just hadn't had the opportunity yet to watch the matches from start to finish, and you can't really ca- – as, as fantastic as the Australian Open extended highlights are, can't really capture the essence of a match, right, without watching it from start to finish and certainly a Grand Slam final. You want to catch the essence of those matches if you're doing my sort of profession. But before we can get into any of that, I do just want to remind all of you listeners that the reason these podcasts are possible day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you. And I know that I say this seemingly every month, but January 2022, our most listened month uh, to month in Crack Rackets history. That's a testament to all of you. We hope you'll continue to tune in despite the lack of Grand Slam action as we do have ATP WTA events week in, week out, challenger action, ITF action, week in, week out, college action, junior action. We promise we'll continue to cover it all here at Cracked Rackets. We hope you all continue to tune in. Some of you sometimes ask, well, how can we support you? You can go become a Patreon member of our Cracked Rackets family. You get bonus content as well, the opportunity to pitch any ideas you have for us. Tell us the topics you want to hear. Of course, you can do that as an ordinary listener as well by reaching out to me on Twitter at A.L. Gruskin. But you want to support our work. You want to put food on Super Producer Daniel Westoff's table, which I highly recommend because he is the best in the business and you know, all he ever requires is being well fed. Uh, go support us on our Patreon channel, which you can do on our website, crackrackets.com. And then, of course, last but not least, here on this mini break podcast, a shout out as always to our friends at Tennis Point. Look, do you want to play like Rafa? Do you want to play like Medvedev? It's going to require a lot of time on the court. And I'm not saying you're going to get there. But you know what's certainly going to prevent you from getting there? If you don't have the right equipment on. If you're not using the proper racket for your game style. If you don't know what strings best fit the amount of spin you use. What tension you should be stringing that. And then, of course, we all know look good, feel good, play good. That's where the clothing comes in. And that's all of that information is available with our friends at Tennis Point. Kindest people in the business. They'll get you in the right equipment. They'll set you on the right track. A fantastic demo program as well. So you can try out whatever you want to try out. And all that information, it's available in one location. Tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15 once you're there and on purchase. Because let's be honest, once you're there, you're going to want to buy something. You use that promo code CR15, you'll get 15% off all sale items free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, tennis ball shortage be damned. You'll get a free can of Wilson Extra Dude Tennis Balls. Tennis-point, the symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-point.com. That promo code is CR15. 
With that said, that's how you know it's been a couple of days since I've podcasted. You will always notice a trend. If it's been more than three days, the intro is always going to go at least seven minutes. I apologize for that fact. All of that aside, let's talk about the tennis that we saw unfold over the last few days in Australia. And with all due respect to Ashley Barty, with all due respect to chivalry, we try to go ladies first here always because we were raised as gentlemen here at Cracked Rackets. But if there's a five-set thriller, if there's a two-sets-to-love deficit that's overcome, how do we not lead this show with Rafa Nadal, Grand Slam number 21 of his career, major title number 21, because I hear people yelling, well, it's only a Grand Slam if you win all four in the same calendar year major title number 21 does that make those of you happy i don't care what you call it slam 21 major 21 grand slam number 21 we all know what you're talking about proper terminology be damned oh but what about the okay sorry i'm getting off that rant i I actually don't care what you call it is the real takeaway here it's major number 21 that's the takeaway here Rafa Nadal does it again and I know I'm going to get into the tactics I want to talk about the number but let's just talk about the circumstance for Rafael Nadal to come back from two sets to love down in a grand slam final let's just talk about Rafa how many times in his career has he come back from two sets to love down overall not just again in grand slam finals which we can get to momentarily but because you look for Rafa in his career Coming back from two sets to love down is not something he has done very frequently. He's 4-20 overall in his career when he's lost the first two sets in a match. And, of course, I say in a match because there were times back early in his career when the Masters event finals were played three out of five sets. And you look for Rafa, one of the four sets he's had from two sets to love down, one of the wins, excuse me, he's had from two sets to love down in his career. Madrid Masters final, 2005, he comes back from two sets to love down to knock off Ivan Lubacic and win the title. But he had lost, I believe, 14 consecutive matches down two sets to love, uh, dating back to the 2007 Wimbledon round of 16. He was down two sets to love to Mikhail Usni, ends up winning that match between that and the Australian Open final. 14 consecutive losses from two sets to love down. And of course, you look for him in his career in Grand Slam finals. Lost the uh, 2006 Wimbledon final, excuse me, two sets to love down to Federer and you know you look for him Wimbledon US Open 2011 loses to Djokovic from two sets to love down final 2014 Australian Open loses Wawrinka when he's two sets to love down obviously Novak rolls him straight set victory in the 2019 Australian Open final four and 20 in his career is Rafael Nadal the last time he had gotten a two sets from love down victory he was 20 or 21 years old I have to look exactly when is Wimbledon so he would have been 21 years old at the time of his last two sets to love down victory. Are you kidding me? Like, what are we talking about here? That to me might be the most um, uh, just amazing fact and a testament to Rafael Nadal and the success he's had and just the mindset he has brought year after year, match after match, point after point, season after season after season. The guy doesn't quit. And you, you know, to come to this podcast to hear that analysis about Rafael Nadal, of course, that is not any unique piece of information you are learning here, but that is his standout quality, even down. 2-3, love 40, his service game, third set, 
end of the match, you think to yourself, okay, this, you know, and even the announcer on the feed I was listening to said it. This feels like the moment Medvedev putting his foot on the neck, you know, putting his foot on the gas pedal. This is the moment he gets to the finish line. And, you know, on the love 30 point in that 2-3 service game when Medvedev, you know, retrieves two uh, overheads from Rafa and it has that lob land over Rafa's head and ends up hitting a jumping down the line backhand winner, with he, which he hit with such success through the first two and a half sets and honestly throughout the duration of this match, you did feel like, yep, this is it. And 99% of players or 90, not 99% of the top 100, but 99% of players fold in that moment. And certainly when you go back and you watch the tape, if you're Daniil Medvedev, I think more than anything else, because the drop shot he hit at 30-40, which Rafa ends up tracking down, you know, again, I get the play there given Rafa's court positioning. Rafa had done that to him. They had played an extended rally. The point, you know, scenarios, the patterns had been so similar. You're trying to disrupt the pattern, catch Rafa off guard. Had Medvedev stepped in to the court and taken that ball on, out of the air as a volley as opposed to trying to hit, you know, a no man's land swinging forehand, which he misses in the net, maybe he makes that shot. And certainly that one stands out. But the 1541 to me is the point that stands out the most because Rafa, it's a good serve. And, you know, a good plus one ball to eventually draw an error for Medvedev for love 40. I don't think Medvedev had anything to do with that point. But the 1540 point, Medvedev hits a big backhand into the Rafa corner. His momentum has moved him forward. He's at the service line. Does he move forward to the net? Rafa has to hit a ridiculous outer third, you know, outside the alley six feet behind the baseline, forehand passing shot, which of course he's hit. And, you know, he hits the on the run behind Medvedev passing shot for the break, 4-3-2 in the fifth set. But that's the ball. If Medvedev comes in on that ball, 15-40, that first backhand, instead of hitting it and then retrieving to the baseline and then ultimately missing uh, a ball on that next shot or two shots later, I think he I think he gets the break there. And we may be talking about a completely different match. But that split second, perhaps, that one decision for Daniil Medvedev, Rafa capitalizes and makes him pay. And the aggression that Rafa played with in sets three, set four, set five, there was a decisiveness of I am going down swinging. I am hitting my forehand big and I am going inside in, inside in, inside out. I'm getting back to my patterns. I'm attacking your forehand with pace just relentlessly and the discipline for Rafa to attack that Medvedev forehand with pace, not only off of the serve, but felt like he started approaching there so much more frequently in sets three, four, and five. You know, ultimately, that's what helped him win this match. Now, there's no denying this was a missed opportunity for Daniil Medvedev, who you look overall in the match, you know, wins 71% of his first serve points. That's a higher percentage than Rafa for the match. He makes 69% of his first serves, 23 aces on the match. That first serve was the biggest weapon in this match, and it's why in set number one, in set number two, and at times... In sets three, four, and five, you know, after long service games where, you know, Medvedev would almost break Rafa or after, you know, Rafa would keep pushing in the Medvedev service game over and over and over again, Medvedev would find the big serve, find the big ace. How many times did he, you know, we talk about the love 40 lead or we will continue to talk about that love 40 lead Medvedev had in the two, three service game of Rafa in set number three. Medvedev almost got broken in the opening game of the set, comes up with two aces on the deuce point on the add point to ultimately put the set away. Medvedev came up with the goods and, 
you know, again, we'll get back to the Rafa excellence. We'll get back to some of the stats of this match. I apologize to all of you listeners, by the way. I know this is a double dose of Alex. I don't drink coffee, just so all of you know. And the reason I don't is because, as you listeners can tell, I talk fast enough as is. I'm like trying to think who's a – oh, no, he's a philosophizer. I mean that's getting into dodgeball, which, by the way, I will continue to stand by one of my takes to my dying day is that dodgeball is one of the comedies of my generation. I, I don't have a single friend who can't quote White Goodman, Ben Stiller's character in that movie or you know, your gym, your life. And your gal. And I also have a roommate, Michael Azaparty, who will never listen to this show, who is White Goodman, the character, just like the real human version of him. And so that's a character that will also always be near and dear to my heart. Anyways, um, Joni loves Chachi. All of that being said, I'm trying to think of the comparison here uh, and why I got into that entire dodgeball rant is because you talk for – oh, the reason I say all of these things and see, this shows you where my brain is at is I know I'm talking fast and I apologize and I'm going to throw a lot of different takes and go in a bunch of different angles and I'm going to try and stay organized here. So again, as we look at the Rafa component, there's no denying given where he was in that match for him to be down the way he was, for Medvedev to be taking the ball early on the rise, hitting his on the rise backhand down the line extraordinarily well and you know Medvedev was hitting his backhand down the line so well which you have to do against Rafa which is what makes Novak Djokovic so you know well positioned to have success against Rafael Nadal because he can take that backhand down the line and keep Rafa honest and keep Rafa from pounding you know that forehand cross court cross court cross court to open his down the line you know Medvedev did keep him honest with that backhand down the line Medvedev you think about some of the definitive shots from this match that you know from 5-3 down Medvedev up 6-5 back on serve in that tiebreaker you know he breaks Rafa by hitting that incredible on the run backhand down the line passing shot to clinch set number two and he expected the crowd to view that shot as a coronating moment right and you know again that he was able to come up with that sort of shot speaks to the level Medvedev played throughout the course of this match and that Rafa was able to come back says you know hit through that and not be deterred and not say well you know what I made it to this final and that's more than I was even expecting out of me no that's not who Rafael Nadal is he competed so well from start to finish he made the tactical adjustments of serving to the uh, to the Medvedev forehand, approaching to that Medvedev forehand, which was the side that would break down with pace. You look for Daniil Medvedev in this match. I wish I could tell you how many forehand unforced errors he hit, 52 overall in the match. I didn't keep an individual forehand error count, uh, but I do think that was the shot where he produced more errors from. And so when you look for Rafa in this match, it was the adjustment. It was the fact that you know he started slicing to that Medvedev forehand as well, just keeping it off speed, not letting Medvedev get any rhythm there and then you know again being more aggressive with his plus one ball swinging more freely with that forehand into the Medvedev forehand and moving forward and you look for Rafa in this match 30 of 50 uh, at the net overall he used every tool in his bag and that's a testament to Rafa as the competitor I do now want to talk about the Medvedev side and then I want to get to the fifth set but let's talk about the Medvedev side next now Daniil Medvedev played well enough to win this match, and that is certainly why I think you saw in the post-match press conference, and he talked about, you know, he no longer feels like he's chasing his boyhood dream as much, and he talks about how, you know, it felt more like a job and the crowd going against him. Certainly, again, when Medvedev hits the -the on-the-run backhand winner to take set number two, which was such an extraordinary shot, you feel like in that moment, okay, you know, 
the crowd should be ready for Daniil Medvedev. The crowd should be backing me here. Did you not see the level I just pulled off? Rafa breaks me for 4-2, and I break him back for 3-4. Then he breaks me for 5-3. Then I break him back for 4-5. Then we hold serve all the way to this tiebreaker, which I'm down 5-3 in, and I now win with this incredible backhand down the line winner. And you're not going to cheer for me overwhelmingly? You're, you know, this crowd is not going to erupt? What do I have to do to get you on this on my side? Can't everyone sympathize, empathize, understand Daniil Medvedev feeling it after the shot he hits? Just go watch that second set again. Go watch the back half of it, the entire sequence. And that's why, again, I wanted to watch this match from start to finish to understand why Daniil Medvedev would feel the way that he did. What Medvedev was able to do through the first two sets was nothing short of sensational. And whether it was, you know, again, him on serve in that first set, I think he faced one, you know, tough game, one tough service game in set number one, but you look for him, the stats overall, he makes 82% of his first serves in that first set, 15 of 18 on first serve points, just defended that first serve so well, made it, you know, because you have to get some free points against Rafa because of how physical the match is going to be, because of how many times you're going to try and hit a backhand down the line and you're not going to hit it perfectly. So Rafa's going to rip a forehand cross court and now you're on the run. And, you know, if you don't hit that on the run forehand perfectly, now Rafa's sitting on an inside out or an inside in forehand and you're just on the run and it's hell. And Medvedev did such a good job in the first two, in the first set in particular, of, of being aggressive with his baseline positioning. Again, when you watch the match, his ability to take the Rafa forehand on the rise and in particular on the rise down the line and just all he did was say, thank you for the topspin, Rafa. That's going to keep this ball from flying and hitting the back fence and I'm going to use my hands to guide the ball beautifully down the line or I'm going to use my body and my weight to catch your ball early on the rise and I'm going to get it back cross court with plenty of depth and just Medvedev had the backhand to hang with Rafael Nadal. And there are two people in, I mean, there's one person in tennis history you say that about definitively. Of course, it's Novak Djokovic. And yeah, there are prime Stan Wawrinka moments, but I think that's a little bit different. I mean, Medvedev's the other guy. I think, you know what? I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't belong in this conversation because he didn't reach the final. But Daniil Medvedev has the backhand to do that. And in the first two sets, he did it. And there are times when you try to take that backhand on the line. And again, if you don't hit it well, Rafa makes you pay because he sees it coming. He anticipates as well as anyone. You know that next backhand is going to be ripped cross court. You're on the run. You have to hit a forehand deep. Otherwise, Rafa now gets a forehand in the center of the court. And when Rafa gets a center of the uh, forehand in the center of the court, for lack of a better term, you're f***ed. And, you know, Medvedev did as good of a job avoiding that over the course of the first two and a half sets and really throughout the course of the match as you can ask from any person in best of five. And, you know, again, you look for these two guys overall in terms of the rally analysis in this match. What was so striking in A, not only does Neil Medvedev win seven more points in this match but than Rafa, but B, you know, is that Medvedev played Rafa even on the five plus shots. You know, you look for Daniil Medvedev, he's plus three on the five to eight shot rallies, Rafa plus six on the nine plus shot rallies. And by the way, Rafa wins 90 points in the zero to four shot rallies. He wins 92 points in the five plus shot rallies. Normally it's like 80, 20 or 70, 30, zero to four versus anything else. That was not the case in this match. This one was physical from start to finish, but particularly, well, I mean, it was physical at the end as well in a different sort of way, but it was so physical in the start of this match. 
And Medvedev was ready for that, and he was willing to suffer, and he was willing to try and last and try and you know outwit Nadal or out-physical Nadal and make the match a track meet. And again, this is where you come back to Rafa the competitor. He found the juice. Rafa Nadal is what, 35 years old? Yeah, 35 years old entering this season, 35 at this event. He found the juice. He had enough left in the tank. And, you know, here's the difference in this gets us to point number three. And because, again, Medvedev was ju- right there physically through those first two sets, made those matches attract me. But as we got to the home stretch of set number three, four, and five, and when you talk about the Medvedev frustration, when does it mount his four all service game in that third set? You know, first point, he, you know, Rafa plays a drop shot, Medvedev gets there. Rafa guesses well on where Medvedev's going to go with that approach shot, hits the backhand cross-court you know, pass. If you've played tennis, you know how frustrating that is when you're like, I ran all this freaking way to track down a drop shot, and this guy's just going to guess correctly and hit a winner to the open court. Why did I even waste all of my time running? So Medvedev, frustration mounting there. You know, 15 all, Medvedev, uh, Rafa hits a great return into the uh, Medvedev forehand, draws a Medvedev error. I mean, any unforced error on a first ball, I suppose, is inherently frustrating, but good shot by Rafa. 15.30, Medvedev draws an easy plus one ball, tries to get cute with it, hits a little patty cake drop shot that ends up going into the net as a disguised drop shot. That was a dumb play by him. And at that point, you know, the crowd starts cheering because now they see, ooh, breakpoint Rafa. He's going to get a set. You know, he might get a break. He might extend this match. We get to play on. And Medvedev let that get under his skin because, again, the first two sets— how did he not win your approval? How are you not cheering for me? How are you now cheering my unforced errors to play on? And you should expect that when you're playing the big three. We know that as fans, but still imagine trying to go through it, what that must feel like for Daniil Medvedev. He left that get under his skin. Rafa ends up breaking him with another fantastic passing shot down the line on that backhand wing. And, you know, then Rafa serves it out. All of a sudden, we go to set number four. And now, you know, set number four, set number five, here's where the difference between Rafa and Medvedev showed themselves. And this is, I suppose, the next point here in this rant. Hopefully, you all are still following along with me. I apologize for the disorganization. Some of you may be thinking, man, where's that Gil Gross guy? He was point one, point two, point three. You guys know we get funky with it here on these mini break podcasts. But you look for, you know, Rafa, the difference between him and Medvedev down the home stretch of this match was just Rafa's execution with his plus one ball, how decisive he is with where he's going to hit his approaches, whether it is down the line, whether it is inside in, inside out, short angle. First of all, every shot, of course, is available to him, but B, just the depth and the spin and the pressure he puts on you. And yeah, Medvedev came up with some fantastic passing shots throughout the course of this match, but try doing that after three and a half hours of tennis, four hours of tennis, five hours of tennis. just, you know, again, Rafa wore him down over the course of the five sets. And, you know, Rafa, you know, one loose service game from Medvedev and he did play, well, I shouldn't say one, two loose service games from Daniil Medvedev, one particularly loose service game at 5-6 in that fifth set. That's the difference in this match. And, 
you know, again, it's a credit to Rafa Nadal who was put under so much pressure physically because Medvedev, especially again, sets one, sets two, sets three, even set number four, was tracking everything down and forcing Rafa to play an extra shot in rally after rally after rally. And Rafa was willing to do that. Rafa was able to meet that test physically. And, you know, again, for Rafa, who executes well on his, you know, on his plus one opportunities, you look for him overall in the match. Rafa wins 67% of his first serve points. And what's so crazy in this match, by the way, both guys earned 22 breakpoint chances. Rafa, 7 of 22. Medvedev, 6 of 22. Speaks to just, again, that little bit margin difference. Rafa, 30 of 50 at the net to Medvedev's 28 of 50. Rafa, 69 winners, 68 unforced errors. Medvedev, 76 winners, 52 unforced errors, although, of course, if you take out the service counts, Rafa, 66 winners, 63 unforced errors. Medvedev, 53 winners, uh, 47 unforced errors from the ground. I think that's, again, just more indicative from a ground stroke perspective. I do think Rafa had just a little bit more juice, a little bit more definitive on those approach shots. And, I mean, you saw it in that final game of the fifth set, an easy hold for Rafa just after breaking, you know, Credit to Medvedev who lands a couple of returns deep and finds a passing shot and finds a couple of inside-out forehands to keep Rafa honest on that forehand wing and, you know, is able to get the break back. 4-5 4-5 all, but then just plays a sloppy service game and certainly, uh, you know, again, misses that, he misses the inside uh, out forehand long to hand Rafa the break there, 4-6-5. And, you know, you just can't give Rafa a second opportunity because if you give him another opportunity, he's going to capitalize on that fact. And so, you know, credit to Rafa for executing down the home stretch. And I mean, there's so many stats you can turn to, right? For Rafael Nadal, obviously the biggest of them all. And I hope, you know, again, in terms of the grasp of the match, you guys were able, I, hopefully I described what we saw, which was just in the end, Rafa's plus one execution, one out over the physicality of Daniil Medvedev, the combination of his fight, his physicality, the just the sting of his plus one ball. I thought he did a great job of mixing up his service locations, whether it was picking on that T-serve to set up a plus one forehand on the deuce side, even though, you know, you think to yourself, well, Medvedev loves that backhand. Don't you want to avoid the backhand return? No. Rafa said, you know what? My plus one forehand, I don't care what your backhand can do. When I execute my game plan and I get a plus one ball, no matter who you are, I'm going to have success against you. That's the bet Rafa made. And as always, that bet ends up paying off. And now, Again, you look for Rafa Nadal, countless, countless, countless things he accomplishes by winning this title, whether it's the fact, you know, there are four men who have won every Grand Slam, uh, every major event, excuse me, at least twice. You've got Rafa, who's won uh, the Australian Open twice, Roland Garros 13-time, Wimbledon twice, U.S. Open twice. Djokovic, of course, has won them all twice with the two being Roland Garros. You've got Roy Emerson who's won three of them twice plus six Australian Opens. And then you've got Rod Laver, who's won two Australian op- uh, two Roland Garros, two U.S. Opens, four Wimbledons, three Australian Opens. That's the list. Nadal joins. Djokovic, Emerson, Laver, him. It's a pretty good list for him to be on. You look for Rafael Nadal. Most tour-level titles in the open era. You know, Jimmy Connors still won at 109. Federer 103. Lendl 94. Rafa now fourth with 90 ATP titles. Djokovic has 86th. He's in fifth. 
You look for Rafael Nadal. He's the first player to win the U.S. Open title from two-set deficit in the championship since 1965 when Roy Emerson beat Fred Stoli with a 6-1 win uh, in the fifth set there. I mean, yeah, that's just... It, it speaks to what Rafael Nadal is capable of doing. He's now 4-3 and three in his career in Grand Slam finals that have gone to a fifth set. You name the list, Rafa's either 1, 2, 3, 4. You know, Rafa's in the top five on it in terms of ATP history. This is a testament to the man who did not play down the home stretch of the 2022, uh, 2021 season, right? The fact that we didn't see Rafa at all down the home stretch of the year was why we had so many doubts about him entering uh, this Australian Open. Because even if you look, again, week number one of the season, he wins a tournament, certainly, and he's able to get the win uh, in Melbourne. And, you know, a fun win, certainly, we all enjoyed over Cressy in that final match. But, you know, Cressy, Rusevori, you just felt like those weren't the guys he was going to end up seeing in the final rounds of this Australian Open. And, you know, certainly Zverev losing early to Shapovalov, Hercots losing early in this tournament from a draw perspective that opened things up. But, you know, he got pushed to five sets against Shapovalov. He ends up winning that match. And certainly you do have to wonder if Rafa's in the bottom half of the draw, if he only gets one day off instead of two days off after that Shapovalov five-set match, does he end up still beating Berrettini in four sets? Is he gassed, you know, at the end of that as well? I think that's a fascinating question to ask. And obviously that's a what if, but it's a what if we have no control over. He was in the top half of the draw. He did end up getting two days off. He made the most of it. Forsett went over Berrettini and then he gets the defending US Open champion in Medvedev in the final. So yeah, he avoided Zverev, but, and yeah, there was no Novak Djokovic in this event, but you play Berrettini, who's made quarterfinals or better at the last four slams, his last four losses at the slams, Djokovic, 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 Nadal. And then you get Medvedev, the guy who by every metric was the favorite entering this event. And you are down two sets to love and you overcome that deficit and you manage to beat him. No one can take away this Grand Slam from Rafael Nadal. And that's why you see he not only won the title, he won the popularity contest over the course of the past three days. Countless people from across realms, not just the tennis world, but you know, athletes from other major sports and anyone who's interacted with Rafa, politicians, just everyone points to Rafa as a role model, as a testament to, you know, A, the things we all enjoy most and the things we gravitate towards in sports, which is that never say die attitude, the class with which he handles himself and just the relentless positivity and the reinforcement, the self-belief and just the resilience and you know, again, the determination, all the isms, Rafa's all the isms, you name him, he is that sort of role model. It's impossible to be anything but, you know, impressed by Rafael Nadal. And even if it wasn't the highest level of tennis he ever played, because I do think physically, you know, despite what the four, you know, the five plus shot rally numbers may say, I do think, you know, A, Medvedev physically outdid him in those first few sets, which early in Rafa's career, you'd never say. B, certainly there were times when the errors piled up for Rafa, when he did feel the need to go after his first forehand with a little bit more juice because Medvedev was just tracking everything else down. And Medvedev, you know, continued to put this pressure on Rafa in the rallies. And Rafa wanted to make things easier for himself. There were times when the errors piled up at the same time. 
2-3, two sets to love down, 2-3, love 40 down in the third. He wins. From a resilience standpoint, that's as good as any win you're going to see from Rafael Nadal, and I'm certain, you know, certainly the the late, you know, what you ask Tom Brady, what ring is your favorite? He always says the next one. You ask Rafa, what slam is your favorite? He probably always says the last one, um, but he always will say the next one as well is what I, I mean that too, but, he, you know, in this immediate moment, he'll say, well, that one, because I'm just coming off of it. But all this proves is that Rafa, I mean, he's now the prohibitive favorite to win the French Open. I don't care about Novak Djokovic beating him at last year's French Open. That was a superhuman performance from Novak Djokovic. And we've said it here in the past. Rafael Nadal has to lose two years in a row at the French Open before you even consider not making him the favorite. And now you look for him again. Last 35 matches, uh, last 52 weeks, excuse me, 34 and 5 overall is Rafael Nadal. He's winning 87% of his matches. He didn't play from August 2nd of last year, and he only played two matches from the end of May. He played two matches from the end of May to the start of January. He wins the warm-up event in Melbourne, now wins the Australian Open. I mean, what a run for Rafa. What an incredible run for, obviously, one of the game's greatest, greatest not only just athletes, but greatest, greatest uh, competitors as well. And, you know, now you look, uh, by the way, for Rafael Nadal, just one last statistical nugget because I do think this is hilarious. You look for him despite the prolific career. He's holding 90.5% of the time. That's 5% pretty much or, you know, 4.6% better than his career average. He's, you know, breaking serve 28.3%, which is look, but he is holding serve better now than he did in the prime of his career. He's 35 years old, folks, and he continues to find ways to get better, continues to find ways to adjust. Rafa freaking Nadal remains the story as always. Now, one final component of this piece, and you know, I'm stealing from other podcasters, but every so often, you, I don't want to just regurgitate the same information. You all know how incredible Rafael Nadal is. At the same time, what a miss for this next generation of ATP players. And certainly the, the biggest bullet, the, the one who is, you have to feel most, you know, how do you not win or do better in this event is Alex Zverev. To lose to Denis Shapovalov straight sets, the fashion that he did to have served for that second set to just gone away, you know, a match with Rafa would have loomed in the quarterfinals. That's just unacceptable for Zverev at this point in his career. And guess what? He knows that, but missed opportunity. No doubt about that. That's a disappointing slam. You look for Shapovalov, who drops those first two sets, has all of this momentum heading into the fifth against Nadal. And see, you know, Nadal physically, his stomach is ailing and he's just not moving well down the home stretch of that fourth set. Again, you are in control if you're Shapovalov and you're broken right away to start the fifth. That's a missed opportunity. No doubt about that. Now, the Berrettini match, that's just a horrible matchup for Berrettini. It was still a four-set match, and I thought that might have been the best we saw Rafa play all tournament long. Nothing you can do about that one. But if you're Medvedev, two sets to love up, 2-3, love 40. You know, 15-40, you have a backhand approach that you hit extraordinarily well. You don't follow it in. 30-40, you hit a bailout drop shot, and then you just kind of get stuck in no man's land, and you let the crowd get to you. I mean— Look, there's something to obviously the greatness of the big three and them in those stages. That's why so many fans gravitate towards them. At the same time, Rafa was not playing that well at the start of this tournament. And, you know, it's a testament to him that he's able to work his way into form, that he's able to summon the level of tennis that he did in that final because, again, he played well enough to win the Grand Slam. That's the level you need to show to win these sorts of events here. But it's just... 
you know, again, time after time after time, and you think, okay, after the Dominic team title at the 2020 U.S. Open, well, maybe the levy has finally broken. Nope. Djokovic wins the first three slams of 2021. Well, you know, that's a superhuman effort that seems to have, you know, broken Djokovic. And now Medvedev gets the confidence of winning and not only winning, but winning in straight sets over Djokovic in the 2020 U.S. Open final and gains all of that confidence. And Alex Zverev wins another year-end finals and looks very good doing it and just has all of that confidence going in as well. And, you know, again, None of those guys could capture the title here. This is the first Grand Slam to me, with all due respect, because last year Djokovic was just superhuman. No one was beating him, and I thought a lot of guys came pretty close, and I thought everyone acquainted themselves well. And again, Medvedev ends up winning a Grand Slam at the end of the season. I think you did all you could do if you're the next gen there. You did not do all you could do if you were the next gen here. And yeah, a lot of that disappointment centers around Alex Virov just dropping the match to Shapovalov that he did. But also, you know, again— I think it was a really good slam for a lot of next-gen players. Certainly Felix played well. Medvedev takes care of business against him, you know, to to uh, get to the final stages of this event. And you look for Daniil Medvedev, I thought, he played really well against Tsitsipas also to get a four-set win there. And just, I mean, credit to Rafa, but Medvedev has that match on his racket. And I think you play it 10 times. I do think uh, Medvedev wins it seven of them. Like, I think Rafa got one of the three that he ends up stealing because you look for Medvedev. He played two atrocious service games in that fifth set. The five-all service game was just rushed. Everything about it was rushed. And guess what? It's a fifth set. It's five hours in. You're dead physically. Mentally, you don't even know what you're thinking. It's all just one giant blur. That's something you just can't learn without experience. And obviously, Medvedev had played Nadal before and reached a fifth set in a U.S. Open final. And so certainly Medvedev had been there before, but he wasn't two sets to love up. He was two sets to love down when that last happened. And you know, again, it's it's certainly a new scenario to be two sets to love up, to still have the crowd so vehemently against you for Medvedev. It's something you learn from. But man, did the draw feel open. No Djokovic in the top half of the draw. And just, you know, again, no... It's, Nadal played six matches since the end of May. Six. Six. And they're unable to capture the title here. And again, Medvedev played close. He played well enough to win that Grand Slam match right up until he didn't. And that's a credit to Nadal who rose his level certainly. But man, I just – I can't believe it. It's 2022 and we're talking about Rafael Nadal as the Australian Open champion. Just – you know, Djokovic title I could have believed because we just saw that. But a Rafa hardcore title – like I know he just won one what? Was the last US Open title Rafa won I believe – I want to say was – 2019 was when he ended up winning that U.S. Open title over Medvedev in the final. Yeah, 2019 final was the five-setter. So that's not that long ago. But how many hardcore matches has Rafa played since 2019? You look for him overall, it's what? Like, I don't know. It's got to be fewer than 30. Like, overall, hardcore matches since the start of 2019. Yeah, he's played. So he's 15-2 and in his last 52 weeks in hard court matches. That's actually kind of insane. You look for him overall during this stretch of time. Again, we'll go back to the start, uh, or we'll go since the start of 2020, since he won that slam in 2019. Since the start of 2020, he's 33-8 in the hard court matches he's played. 80% win percentage. Honestly, that's pretty good. If you look who the losses are to, Djokovic team, Zverev team, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, then Lloyd Harris and David Goffin, which whatever. But like... 
I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he hasn't been vulnerable. He's holding serve 89% of the time in these hardcourt matches. So maybe that's just the missing piece that he's figured out. Maybe, again, it should just be all the credit. But I do think, to some extent, this is the first slam because I've made a lot of excuses for the next gen over the years. This is the first slam where I think if you're Medvedev, certainly you're kicking yourself. But if you are all of them, you're looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, we let Rafa win another one and it's not at Roland Garros and Djokovic wasn't in the draw – How did we allow this to happen? And I do want to see what these next months look like because, I mean, if Medvedev, I could see him sweeping Indian Wells in Miami. I could see some sort of performance like that where these guys really take off and they feel like this is unacceptable. I just think these next two months are that much more fascinating with Nadal winning because, again, I think we were ready to coordinate Medvedev world number one. And the guy who, if Djokovic isn't in the draw, you say is the favorite on a hard court. And now we can't do that. Because Rafa's won the event, and there is no, uh, there's still no unequivocal favorite of these next gen men, and that's disappointing to say. Certainly, coming out of this 2022 Australian Open, nevertheless, all the credit in the world to Rafa. He wins Grand Slam number 21. And by the way, Rafa, I think, has won two titles in at least two titles in every season since I want to say like 2002 or something crazy like, or not 2002, excuse me, 2006 or something crazy like that. I mean. Come on now. That's just ridiculous. It's just like it's absurd the degree of consistency year after year after year after year. And this is a guy who, you know, you go back, played 91 matches in 2007, 88 in 08, 82 in 09, 81 in 2010, 85 in 2011, plays 49 due to injury in 2012. And you think, okay, maybe he's slowing down. Maybe, you know, this is the end of an era. Nope, nope, nope. Plays 79 in 2017. And, you know, again, this is a career now that has spanned 15, 16, 17 years of top three, top two, world number one level tennis. Ah. Winner of the title, winner of the popularity contest. With all of that said, that is your men's singles final. Hopefully that puts a bow on all the action we saw unfold. For what it's worth, you look right now at the ELO ratings. Djokovic still your number one. Medvedev surprisingly still your number two. Perhaps even more shocking, Zverev still your number three by ELO. Rafa all the way back up to four. You've got Tsitsipas five, Federer six, Berrettini seven. Then things get fun. Alcaraz eight, Sinner nine. Rude 10, Team 11 based on respect, although, of course, we're all so sad to hear he's not going to be able to compete this week on the clay. FAA 11, uh, FAA 12, excuse me, Rublev 13, then you get to Carreno Busta 14, then we get Brooksby, Fritz, Korda, Schwartzman, Shapo, Griekspor, Karatsev. Things get interesting after that, but that top 10 feels pretty good. That top 10, I'm going to tweet that out. I have two tweets for all of you. I'm going to do the Rafa thing on the three-set losses, Rafa on the two sets to love down, uh, and then I'm definitely going to tweet out ELO versus the rankings, what feels more accurate because I think that feels pretty darn accurate. Of course, you look now for Rafael Nadal. Uh, he's back up. Uh, you look for him via hold percentage now for Rafa. He's back up to, uh, I believe, number 11 right now amongst top 50 players over the last 52 weeks. You look for him in terms of break percentage right now. Rafa uh, all the way back up to number three. And by the way, Medvedev right now, number five in terms of break percentage. Medvedev number six in terms of hold percentage. You know, Statistically, don't expect him to go anywhere anytime soon, but that's where things stand right now. 
uh, on the men's side coming out of the Australian Open, of course, Zverev back in action this week uh, as he's playing one of these 250s. And we'll talk about all of that on a podcast either later today. It'll either be a two-mini break Tuesday or you all will get that podcast early Wednesday morning. Just depends on you know how things are going for us. We've got our shows tonight in terms of college tennis. You don't care about that. But let's now talk about the women's side. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. And I do apologize. I don't think I'm going to spend 35 minutes on this like I did on the men's. But, I mean, it's just undeniable. And we talked about a lot, a lot of these things with David Kane before the final. And so I do think, you know, a lot of what we said there holds true even after the fact, particularly given now that Ashley Barty's won. I mean, I think there's a lot of false narratives. You know, there's a couple of false narratives. Let's play that game because you guys know I like calling out false narratives at Twitter more than anything else. False narrative number A. More people say, oh, you know, they call Rafa a clay court specialist, but clearly he's one of the best hard court players of all time. No one serious still calls Rafa a clay court specialist. If you don't have a crocodile in your Twitter bio, you know, you are not calling Rafa a clay court specialist. I promise you that. So that's just absurd. That's false narrative number one. False narrative number two, more people now say Ashley Barty wasn't a true number one and there were people questioning her number one than there are actually people who ever questioned her world number one, uh, her at world number one. And, you know, now it's unequivocal as Ashley Barty, without dropping a set, wins this Australian Open title. And there are a lot of statistics you can talk about for Ashley Barty as you look at what she accomplishes here uh, with this title run. And, you know, again, I'm going to try and cycle through all of them here now. You look for Ashley Barty. She wins by losing just 30 games at this Australian Open. You look at some of the players, you know, the least games ever dropped on a way to a title. Navratilova dropped 19. 19 in seven matches. She's dropping fewer than three games a match. Come on. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Navratilova, 19. Steffi Graf did it with 20 at the 88 French Open, which again, come on now. By the way, Steffi Graf dropped 20. Listen to Steffi Graf's 88 numbers. This is hilarious. She drops 20 games at the 1988 uh, Slam She uh, at French Open. She drops 27 games at the 1988 Wimbledon. She drops 29 games at the uh, 1988 Australian Open, and she must have dropped a set or something at the 1988 U.S. Open uh, with that match not uh, tournament not being on this list. But yeah, freaking unbelievable. Steffi freaking Groff. Um, anyways, all of that is to say, Ashley Barty drops 30 games, which is tied for, I believe, 12th on this list, the 12th fewest games ever dropped while winning or on a Grand Slam winning run. You look for Ashley Barty. She becomes the third player in the open era to win a slam without facing a WTA top 20 ranked player, which fine, criticize all you want. But does anyone think Amanda Nisimova isn't playing right now like a top 20 level player? And, you know, again, you give in the context of the draw for her to knock out Osaka, knock out Benchich and play a Danielle Collins, who I think is right now as good as any other player, you know, who rises to the top 10 but is as good as any player in the top 10 right now coming into the event when she plays her best like that's a misleading stat it is one though I still think worth noting of course you look elsewhere for Ashley Barty players to win the Australian Open without dropping a set Margaret Court 
Ivan Gulagankali, Steffi Graf, Martina Hingis, Mary Pierce, Lindsay Davenport, Chris O'Neill, more recently, Serena Sharapova Barty. I don't know Chris O'Neill as well as I should, but every other name on that list, certified one of the greats in all-time tennis history. And of course, what Mary Pierce was able to accomplish at her best in her career, certainly that ceiling uh, as high as anyone out there. But yeah, again, for Ashley Barty, that's not it. You look for her now. She becomes the latest player to win, uh, first player since Sloan Stevens in 2017, excuse me, to win her home slam. You look, Stevens 2017 at the U.S. Open, of course, Murray 2016 at Wimbledon. You look, you know, the last players, and these come from Alex Banchilla. Shout out to Mr. Banch and, Ra- you know, my friend, uh, everyone's Twitter friend, Jimmy. You look at the last four home women to win each of the four single slams. Barty this year, Mary Peace, Pierce won the two. French Open, Virginia Wade for the 77 Wimbledon, Sloan Stevens, 2017 U.S. Open. You look on the men's side, Mark Edmondson, last to win the Australian Open, 1976, Yannick Noah, 1983, Roddick, 03 U.S. Open, Murray, 2016 Wimbledon. But to, for that accomplishment for Ashley Barty, which, you know, much like Murray, many had hoped for her in her home country. And you look at the TV ratings. What was it? Ben Rothenberg tweeted this out. I believe 17% of Australia, 17% of the country tuned in to Ashley Barty's run to, uh, again, if 17% of America tuned in to the U.S. Open final to watch like a Francis Tiafo or a Tommy Paul That would be a historic sort of event in American sport history. And 17% of Australia tuned in to watch Ashley Barty. might be a little bit more. I apologize if that stat's a little bit off. You can fact check it. Go check out Ben's Twitter feed. It was a remarkable number and speaks to just what Ashley Barty has accomplished over these last 52 weeks. And you look for her now 49-8 over these last 52 weeks. She's holding serve 82.6% of the time. Not only is that number one amongst top 50 players, she's holding serve at a 6.4% higher rate than Barbara Krejcikova, who's number two at this list, 76.2%. 6% better than the second place person. The gap between Krejcikova and 21st place Layla Fernandez is also 6%. So there's a bigger gap between Barty and Krejcikova 1-2 to two than there is Krejcikova to Fernandez uh, over these past couple of weeks. I mean, uh, that's just ridiculous. That's ju- Again, it, it speaks to Ashley Barty, just the, how elite she is on her serve and how exceptional she can be overall. And you look uh, for Ashley Barty just – That was the difference in this match, time after time after time, her ability to execute on that first serve. And you look for Ashley Barty overall in the match, that's the biggest difference. She's plus 10 in the zero to four shot rallies, one so effective on that plus one ball in the seven two tiebreaker. She wins in the second set. And, you know, again, you look overall break point chances for Danielle Collins, two of four on her break point chances, both of those breaks in the second set. Ashley Barty was not broken to start this match. And much like for, Ash, uh, for excuse me, Jess Pagula uh, in the course of their semifinal match, you just knew right away set number one for, you know, Danielle Collins to, you know, you look in that opening game for her, for her to, you know, be right there uh, in that opening game, have a couple of uh, game point chances, excuse me, her opening service game to have those game point chances and just to have, it just felt like, uh, and to be able to hold there, but then, you know, 
it it just felt like as you went through the game, as you went through game after game after game, that Barty just got closer and closer to working towards the Danielle Collins break. And then you look for Danielle Collins, who came out of this match swinging. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And just you know, was looking to take the ball early and just on the rise and play on her terms and gets into an Ashley Barty service game at two uh, two all, excuse me, in that first set. But then Barty able to hold for three two, and it just felt like when she got that hold that the break was inevitably coming. And you look for Ashley Barty who breaks right away in that next game four four two, and it's just able to lace some forehands by Danielle Collins and able to connect on a couple of returns. And I want to give Danielle Collins credit in this match because I thought she did an excellent job of not being afraid of the Ashley Barty forehand. In particular, you know, she was going to say, okay, you can hit forehands in this match, but I'm only going to let you hit them on the run. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to serve out wide to your forehand on the do side. Then I'm going to attack your on the run backhand. Once you hit a slice there, if the open space dictates that I should hit down the line and to your forehand wing, I'm going to gun it to that forehand wing. I'm going to do everything I can to get the ball to that side. And, you know, again, credit to Danielle Collins, who is able to build up a 5-1 lead, not only by doing just that, but by moving forward at a rate I don't think I've ever seen her move forward. She was 11 of 16 at the net in this match. I think that's not doing her justice. I think that's selling her short. That doesn't speak to, you know, some of the swinging volleys she hit in the middle of the court just to take that extra half second away from Ashley Barty whenever Barty would slice on that backhand wing. And credit to Danielle Collins, who again was not deterred by the slice, who was willing to take that ball early on the rise, down the line, play aggressively, and again, rips off a 5-1 lead because she wasn't afraid to play to the Ashley Barty forehand. And Barty's on the run forehand disappeared through the first six games of that second set. But then Ashley Barty found her rhythm. And you look at the stats, they're indicative of that fact. The biggest weapon in this ser- in this match was the Barty first serve and the Barty plus one ball. And she wins 82% of her first serve points, 31 of 38 for the match, hits 30 winners against 22 unforced errors, again, plus 10 in the zero to four shot rallies. She was just more decisive, more accurate, better depth, more comfortable moving forward off of that plus one ball. And again, only five of six and that points one. It's usually because she would either draw some sort of error on her approach shot from Danielle Collins or she would hit that Daniel, uh, that approach shot too well that she wouldn't have to get, you know, again, have to do anything on the volley. And you look for Barty, 30 winners, 22 unforced errors in this match. She played a clean tennis match from start to finish, minus a 20-minute blip there at the start of the first set, although I do think that had more to do with Collins and all the credit in the world to Danielle Collins for taking that ball early on the rise and just going down swinging. And, you know, again, you look for Danielle Collins now who rises into the top 100 with this uh, – top 100, top 10, excuse me, with this result up to number 10. That's a new career high for the 28-year-old, going to be 29 at the end of the season. So playing all year at age 28 – it's a later prime than you see for most players, but you got to remember, Danielle Collins played four years of college tennis, and this is a testament to college tennis, that development. Two-time NCAA champion Danielle Collins took her a second physically to get where she needed to be and mentally from a discipline standpoint and just what it takes to have success at the top levels of pro tennis, and she developed those skills, and now they're paying dividends. And, you know, again, it was her third quarterfinal or further at a Grand Slam final, and just for her to uh, – for her at a Grand Slam, Slam event and, you know, first final for her, but 
played so well on her way to that final, whether it was the three-set wins over Tossin or Mertens, straight sets in the last two matches over Cornet and Sviantec, and then again, she came closest to taking a set off Dan, uh, off Ashley Barty, is up 5-1 in that second set. You did think, you know, credit to Barty, who certainly found her rhythm on the forehand. It did feel like Collins, I don't want to say got a bit gun-shy, but wasn't hitting as loosely, as freely as she did to build that 5-1 lead. And, you know, that's something you could see the emotion on her face. She'll take that with her uh, throughout the rest of this season. And, I mean, look, Danielle Collins now, 43-15 and 15 in her last 52 weeks. That's, a, you know, winning 70% of her first serve points and, you know, top 10 break percentage, excuse me, 10th in break percentage as well. She has essentially nothing to defend until May. She, you know, she made the round of 64 last year's Australian Open. Well, now she's made the final. She made the semifinals at an event the second week of Australia, but has already upped those points with her final. And yeah, those points will go off her record. But again, Australian Open final. Between that, she has an Adelaide quarterfinal and a first round win in Miami. That's it. So she has three WTA wins, one quarterfinal and a Miami round of 64 to defend until the French Open. Right now, she's number 20 in the world. She's got Miami, again, coming up. She's got Indian Wells, where last year she lost round of 32 to Own Jabour. She's going to be even higher seed now, so you know potentially an, even, an easier match for her in that round of 32. Miami, Indian Wells, essentially free opportunities on the board for Danielle Collins to pick up some early and easy points. And then an entire clay court season, Madrid, Rome, you name the cities, Danielle Collins will have the chance to pick up points at them. And you know, she's made a quarterfinal at the French Open before. Yeah, you know, and you look for her last year, how she got on her role was playing Budapest and Palermo back to back and having success at those two lower level WTA events helped her find her rhythm. Now, she's got some points to defend down the back half of this season for sure, but very, very few to defend pretty much through Wimbledon. And so, this is an opportunity for Danielle Collins. We were thinking, you know, again, top 10 maybe if things broke right for her this season, just where her points wise. But now, I mean, top five's in the cards. If she makes a quarterfinals Indian Wells, quarterfinals in Miami, which are both in play and, you know, plays the big events on the clay courts and wins a couple of matches there, top five is in the cards for Danielle Collins. So credit to the American Shout out college tennis. Hopefully this is a ringing endorsement for that. And hopefully now some of you will give college tennis a chance because, hey, don't you want to be the smart fan who's like, well, I found the next Danielle Collins. It's Emma Navarro or I found the next Danielle Collins. It's Abby Forbes or whatever it may be. There is that next Danielle Collins in college tennis. You just got to know how to find them. So hopefully this will be a ringing endorsement of that. I do want to finish on one other Ashley Barty note because, again, Barty, sensational, not dropping a set on her way to the title, 49-8 and eight now in her last 52. That's an 86% win percentage. She's also 138-8 and eight since the Canada 1000-level event in 2018, 138-30, 138-30, 82% win percentage over the course of three and a half years. And I know she didn't play in 2020. So 2019, 2021, back half of 20. So three years, excuse me, 138 and 30 over a three-year run. And we talked about all these stats with David Kane, but you look for her now. She's made the round of 16, or excuse me, during that stretch. So back half of 2018 till now, you look for her overall in terms of Grand Slams played. She's played 11 different main draws of Grand Slams. You look for her during that stretch of times. She's made the second week or further in nine of those Grand Slams. Second week, 
you know, round of 16 or further, excuse me, in nine of the 11 Grand Slams she's played since the end of 2018. She's made the quarterfinals in six of them, semifinals, four of them, finals and titles in three of them, 3-0 and in her three Grand Slam finals. Again, you look for her overall during the stretch, not just at the Grand Slams, but for her, she's made 16 different finals, won 13 different uh, titles. You look for her overall, again, in terms of who she's playing by opponent during the stretch of time against opponents, ranked outside the top 50, Ashley Barty, 53-6. and six. It's a 90% win percentage. That's as good as it gets, folks. You look for her 94-14 and 14 against opponents ranked outside the top 20. 87% win percentage. You look for her against top 20 opponents, 44 and 16. I mean, that's a 73% win percentage against the top 10. She's 22 and 10, 69% win percentage. This is an all-time sort of run, folks. I don't care what David Kane says. You compare it to someone like Simona Halep, who has won 75% of her matches since 2013. Now, that's a ridiculous 10-year run. But she never, you know, you look for Simona Halep throughout the course of her career. She, you know, has only eclipsed an 80% win percentage once. And it was in the shortened 2020 when she was 23 and 3. And yeah, 2018, she was 79%, 46 and 12. But she was never at an 82% clip over a three and a half, four year run. And she never had this level of consistency. Obviously, has only won two Grand Slam titles. Uh, it's a testament to, you know, uh, the success of Ashley Barty that she's been already able to win three. And, you know, again, so you start looking through tennis history. Kim Kleisters, from the start of 2002 to the end of 2006. 271 and 52. So that's an 84% win percentage. That's pretty freaking good, right? You look for her at the Grand Slams during that time. In terms of total Grand Slams played, she plays 15 Grand Slams during that stretch of time. She makes the round of 16 at 13 of the 15. Now, right now, Barty's at 9 of the 11. 13 of 15 in play for both of them. And of course, Barty feels like he's in the middle of her run. I'm talking about Kleisters from start to finish. Now, Kleischer's made 10 quarterfinals, and she was 10-0 and 0 in those quarterfinals. Barty's already 4-2. and 2. That's just a ridiculous number for Kim Kleischer's. Now, she was 4-6 and 6 in Grand Slam semifinals. So she made 10 semifinals, 4-6 and 6 in them, 1-3 in her Grand Slam finals. Now, of course, she ends up winning a couple more Grand Slam titles later on in her career. But at the peak of Kim Kleischer's powers, she wins 84% of her matches, you know, 13 second weeks and 15 Grand Slams, 10 quarterfinals and 15 Grand Slams, which is still in play for Ashley Barty. If she wins out or I think she can get to nine, whatever. No, six. She has four more to go. She can get to 10. Still in play, folks. She's got to make four in her next four, but still in play. Um, you know, four Grand Slam finals. Barty's made three. Barty's won three titles. Kleischer's lost three different times to Justine Ennin. You could argue that Justine Ennin, I think clearly, is a t- more difficult opponent than Barty's faced in any of her three finals. But you can only face the people who are against you. And again, Ashley Barty has dominated the people against her. Now, to to David Kane's point in our last podcast, we haven't seen a consistently sustained dominance from Naomi Osaka. We know when she plays her best, she can beat anyone, but we haven't seen her sustain that for a, a, for an entire season A, but for you know consecutive seasons either. We haven't seen her do it over a 24 month stretch, and it feels like Muguruza. We never, you know, we just haven't been able to coax the best of her in the biggest moments. Sabalenka, it feels like she's not quite there yet, and you know Shviantek, not quite there yet, and. You know, for all of these players, has a clear number two, three, four, as David said, emerged in the women's side? No, there hasn't. And that depth, that the fact that, you know, two through 30 are all fairly similar in level, certainly two through 15, pick a name out of a hat. 
that's a great thing for us tennis fans, but does that mean we haven't seen Barty tested to her limits? Maybe. Now I will say this. Again, statistically, Ashley Barty gets better and better with every passing year, and it's not particularly close in the ways that she gets better. She's held serve 94.1% of the time this season. Obviously, that would be the career high of career highs, but you know, 82.6 uh, – excuse me. Yeah, 82.6 over the past 52 weeks. 6% better. Then number two on the list. She's also breaking serve 40, uh, excuse me, right now 41.1% uh, of the time over the last 52 weeks. That number is good for 11th. If she's going to hold serve at the number one rate and break serve at a top 10 rate and that backhand slice is no longer a liability, I just don't know how you beat her. To quote Jess Pagula, she's just a little bit better at everything than everyone else. And so credit to Ashley Barty. She has been that good. And again, very, very deserving of this 2022 Australian Open title, the unequivocal world number one right now in the women's game. Of course, just some other fun facts for you all as you look at the ELO rankings on the women's side. Barty 1, Bedosa 2, Contave 3, Collins 4, Sviantec 5, Jabur 6, Vika 7 feels a little high, Muguruza 8, Halep 9, Pliskova 10, then you get Sakari 11, Osaka 12, Krejcikova 13, Sabalenka 14, Rabakina 15, Serena 16, then you start getting, you know, again, things get funky after that, Tossin 21, Anisimova 23, Coco Goff down to 29, Pavlochenkova all the way down at 33 in these rankings, Radakanu now at 40, Ah, to be debating ELO rankings. We are officially back, folks. And, you know, again, with that in mind, one last thing I want to do just quickly talk about the other finals. Nick Kyrgios, major champion. That's fun to say, isn't it? And I don't care about the comments between he, Michael Venus, whatever. To some extent, all publicity is good publicity for the sport and you know, again, the energy, the crowd, not understanding Kyrgios, the entertainer. Do I think it's appropriate for him to any ever do any name calling? No, of course not. But I don't have a, a definitive opinion who's in the right, who's in the wrong, who should I be criticizing here. I'm just excited that everyone seems to be so excited. And you saw the crowds and you saw the reaction to Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kokonakis, who, of course, were on their home soil. But the reaction from the crowd, how captivated they were in each and every match they played and the energy and the excitement, it was... It was delightful. And just, yeah, is the Nick Kyrgio celebration tour, are there going to be moments where we're all cringing? Unequivocally. There were times in that press conference, of course, we were all cringing. At the same time, the energy, the excitement, and engaged and happy to be playing tennis, Nick Kyrgios, you see what it does for the crowds. You see what it does for everyone. Tennis is a better place when Nick Kyrgios is locked in. And credit to Tenassi Kokonakis, who plays the role of caretaker, uh, but ultimately, you know, again, those guys, that's a lot of talent on a doubles court, a lot of big serves, a lot of definitive forehands, credit to the two of them for getting the job done. Credit to Bruno Kuzahara, who I've had the chance to see play. Obviously not the biggest guy, what, 5'7", five, 5'8", five, but just relentless. That's the word you use to describe him. And obviously now, you know, we saw Samir Banerjee, who wins Junior Wimbledon. He was committed to Columbia, decommits, then commits to Stanford, where he will now be playing his years. Bruno is a very much sought-after recruit in the college tennis world, and now you win a junior slam. Certainly, there will be some wild-card opportunities for him. He's going to have the chance to compete in other junior events throughout the course of the year as well. We'll see how he does. You know, again, I always say if you don't have a top 200, 300 pro ranking, why not go to college? Why not go train on someone else's dime for a year or two until you know you're ready to make that jump? But 
maybe he does know he's ready to make that jump and you know everyone's money situation isn't the same sometimes you've got the sponsors sometimes you've got the backing I can't speak to Bruno's situation I will say this anytime you win a junior slam things get that much more intriguing so credit to Bruno who just what was it a four-hour match just a thriller in that boys singles final and you know I know Bruno's opponent cramping at the end of that one as well that was fun folks and so if you haven't go check out the highlights on the Australian Open YouTube channel and again credit to the Australian Open and you heard to a T you know all these players complimenting Craig Tylee I don't have any definitive thoughts on that either it's not shocking to hear certainly but you know, again, given everything that happened from the Novak Djokovic perspective, will he keep his job? That is one of the questions we will all be monitoring over the next month. But the Australian Open media staff killed it, whether it was press conferences that were available, whether it was, again, the countless clips, avail- uh, the countless extended highlights, regular highlights. I felt like I was able to watch nearly every match played in singles at this 2022 Australian Open, or at least parts, I should say, of every match played. And that is something you can never say about a Grand Slam event. So credit to the Australian Open media team. They absolutely killed it. That's where things stand after the year's first Grand Slam event. And again, who's going to emerge as that challenger to Barty? Who is going to, you know, hopefully, if possible, will any of these next-gen guys take a firm grip of the top of the ATP Tour before the start of the French Open? Can any of them, you know, how will they rebound here? Will we see Rafa at all at Indian Wells at Miami? Will we see Djokovic at all at either of those events? Those are unanswered questions. We will continue to discuss here on this show over the next couple of months and, of course, three ATP events, Cleveland Challenger, college tennis action. We're going to talk about it all here on our shows as we try to ensure you fans remain the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. But that'll do it for our coverage of the 2022 Australian Open. If for some reason you'd like to go recap any particular day in in particular, you can do so on our Crack Rackets website. Of course, we recapped all of the first 12 days. Here's our final recap as well. And you know, again, if you can miss if you missed any of the action, you can catch up on it all there. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates about what's going on, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. YouTube, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly? I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Of course, all of that content available on our website, CrackedRackets.com. But to ensure you don't miss out on anything like rate, subscribe, review to this show, uh, the Great Shot Podcast, Mini Break, and our Cracked Interviews Podcast as well. Uh, with all that said, just a reminder. GSP's live Tuesday, Thursday, as we recap everything happening across the college tennis world. If you want to interact with us, offer us your thoughts as well, please come feel free uh, Feel free to do so. You'll also get to see the outstanding work of super producer Daniel Westoff. Uh, with all that said, also, shout out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that in mind for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. For the final time at this 2022 Australian Open, you know what we say. That's the break. And we will talk to you all either later tonight or tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.